Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I'm not a crook. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan. Source for the latest news on money, politics, prophecy, and preparedness. And now your host, the editor-in-chief of ChristianMoney.com and the author of more than 30 books, Jim Paris. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our guest segment. And this is his third time with us. Fascinating guest. Just to tell you a little bit about him, his name is Robert W. Sullivan IV. We call him Rob here. Uh, if you go and look at him over at Amazon, it says he's a philosopher, historian. He's uh, a lawyer as well as a best-selling author. He's got several books out that uh, you can take a look at. And tonight we're going to be talking with him again about his fantastic book, Cinema Symbolism, all about these hidden messages and symbols inside of movies. Rob, good to have you back with us, sir. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me back on your show. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you, as always. I'm just uh, playing with the sound a little bit here, make sure we've got enough volume for you. So I wanted to ask you, though, before we get into, and I've got a list of all these movies that my producer gave me that I want to ask you about tonight, but I wanted to get your thoughts on the state of the movie industry. And, man, aren't things changing? We're starting to see movies um, like this uh, Irishman movie where it went from a few theaters to like three weeks later, it's it's on Netflix. And now Netflix is doing so much and Amazon is doing so much and people are not going out to the big movie theaters and they're watching at home more often. Are, are we really just starting to see a major, major shift and change in the entire industry? Um, you know, I, I, I suppose so. Um, it's certainly different um, than it was when I was growing up as a kid. Uh, when, when, when I was a kid, you know, in the eighties and, and, you know, even into the nineties, I mean, it was, you went to the theater and then, you know, with video, it came out with a video like six months later. And then even then at that point, you couldn't buy it because it was overpriced and it was, it, it became, you know, for sale about even six months after that. I mean, now the movie hits the theater and like in three months, you could basically buy it on Blu-ray or like you said, Netflix. Um, I mean, they still make a ton of money hand over fist, um, with the box office. Um, you know, movies such as, you know, I guess the more, the, you know, the bigger blockbusters do, um, depending on how well the movie does in, in the theater, um, you know, it, it maybe, maybe it depends on how quickly it shows up on Netflix or something like that. I, I mean, I can tell you that, uh, one of the things that has changed substantially is, um, is, you know, people, people, the, the, the domestic box office in the United States um, used to be really sort of the tell-all end of a movie, um, but that's not the case anymore. Uh, the domestic box office in the United States is important, of course, but the overseas market is, is quadrupled um, in the last 15, 15 20 years, um, going back to the you know early 2000s, uh, really when um, movies were starting to be marketed in China. Um, this is when you know, the domestic box office, I mean, you, you could make a movie that it would maybe make, you know, $50 million domestically in a box office and think, oh, that's not that much, that's kind of a bomb. Uh, but it could make $150 million in China and plus overseas. 
and then you're not even counting Blu-ray sales. So m- movies that, you know, you may say, oh, that movie kind of came and went and may not, may not have done much of a box office. You'd be surprised when you look it up and you find out how much money it made, you know, when you factor in the domestic, but then the overseas. Uh, that, that really picks it up into a, another level. So uh, they're doing very well uh, still financially. And a, a lot of these movies, too, are the way you look at a movie's financial success, I would bet, is different also because it used to be. You know, of course, you know, back in the day when I was a kid, it, it like it came out at the movies and then it was either it, it, it went big or it didn't. And it, it sort of disappeared. Maybe, you know, back, back in the day when we had VHS tapes, it would come out and there would be a little bit of money made on that. Right. Maybe maybe you would go on TV. But now these are really like income producing assets for like for, for forever. There, a lot of this is for this is like evergreen type of content where you know, 50 years from now, I'm dead and gone and someone's going to be paying some money to watch a movie that maybe wasn't so big at the box office the last couple of weeks. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, um, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, I remember like if a movie came out and maybe didn't do well, then it would go right to video and they'd make some money on that. But now with the overseas markets and the Blu-ray and the DVD, I mean, these monies can just generate money. Um, you know, for a very long time. I mean, you know, just it's a generational thing. Kids come along, they haven't seen it. I mean, like, look at a movie like, you know, Batman 89 with Jack Nicholson. I mean, the movie's what, you know, 30 years old now. But, you know, if you're a kid growing up, you know, you were born 10 years ago and you never saw it, oh, I got to see, I got to see that. Um, so, you know, that movie will continue to make money, you know, in, in perpetuity, essentially. So it, it's very lucrative. I mean, I, and I, like I said, the one thing that has definitely changed is, that is, is the overseas market, um, you know, especially with, with China. Um, that, that, that really almost, when you're dealing with the Chinese market, I mean, that almost prohibits a movie from being a total tanker. I mean, you know, the, the word box office bomb all but doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I mean, it was completely tanks, but even in China and overseas, I mean, the movie is almost guaranteed to break even at this point in time. All right, let's get into some of these uh, movies, and I, I, I want to ask you, um, and some of these questions may be repetitive from your other appearances, but my producer may have told you that we are now commercial-free, which which is the first time you've been with us since we're commercial-free, so that's cool, where we'll be able to get into this without being interrupted every 10 minutes by the three- or four-minute commercial break. So some of this you've shared with us before, but I want to hit you with this question because it's a great opening question are these hidden symbols in the movies, um, are they there for a sinister reason? Is somebody playing a practical joke? I remember back in the day when I was growing up, the big thing was like you could play records backwards and there would be like secret words. And then it turned out that some of the rock groups actually did put secret words in there just to play into that whole idea. The record would sell even more. Are we dealing with something similar to that? Are, I mean, is this like sinister if you happen to see a certain number popping up all throughout a movie? Or is this an inside joke going on amongst the people in the production? Uh, and, and how, you know, how long does it take to pick up on these symbols? I mean, my goodness, you must have to watch these movies multiple times to see it all. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The, the, the movie definitely has to be watched more than one time. Um, I mean, it's, some movies are just really, you know, overloaded with it. Some movies, not so much. Um, is it sinister? To be honest with you, I've never encountered any of this that I thought I considered to be sinister or evil. On, on that note, though, I mean, there are some very startling coincidences and strange imagery that is unexplainable. 
um, you, you might be able to write it off as if it's not intentional, then maybe it's a product of the collective unconscious. This is what Carl Gustav Jung talked about, or even synchronicity, that it's just how some linked up in some sort of supernatural way beyond our comprehension. A, a lot of times, in, 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 when I analyze it, um, and you're right, I mean, you definitely have to watch it in, in more than one time. Um, you know, the one movie that I, I actually have done Cinema Simples 3, and I was, I've actually done it, and I was getting up, I was, you know, in the... Can you say say the name of the, the... Say the name of that movie again. You, it was a little garbled. Say that again. Oh, no, I was saying that um, I was actually just writing uh, Cinema Symbolism 3. Oh, okay, the, okay the name of your book, the, the third book is coming out. I'm sorry, I thought you were referencing a movie name. Go ahead, my, my apologies. Well, no, no, so, yeah, well, one of the movies, the movie, the book is actually done, and I just watched a movie called Midsommar, which is just overloaded with stuff, and I, I kind of put the book on pause, and I hmm. decided to incorporate it into the movie, into the book, excuse me, but... Um, it's one, it's funny because it, to harken back to what you were asking me, I've watched the movie now about four times and I figured, oh, okay, I picked up on most of this stuff. And I watched it again for a fifth time and I even saw more stuff. So you're absolutely correct. It, it takes multiple viewings of this, uh, of the movie to, to pick up on it. Um, but, you know, a lot of times, I mean, it just depends on what the movie, movie maker is going for and the sophistication of the filmmaker. I mean, when you're dealing with guys, such as a Stanley Kubrick or a Steven Spielberg or, you know, more modern guys now, like, you know, Darren Aronofsky or Aaron Ari Aster, who did Midsommar, or that Todd Phillips, uh, who did Joker. Uh, that's another movie that is just, you know, ripe with all kind of symbolism and homages um, and Easter egg. Uh, you know, it, it's just really... It, it's know, in, many ways, it, very- it, in many ways, I you know, I'm a musician, I'm I'm not an artist in the sense you know of of canvas or or sculpting or anything like that, but um, I, I get the idea that when you listen to a, a music, whether it's classical or jazz, you listen to the same tune. Like I'm a big listener to Chet Baker, one of my favorite trumpet players, and I'm also a trumpet player, and I listen to sometimes the same album. It'll be in my car for a week or two, and I'll be listening to it. And I'm hearing different things a lot of times every time I listen to it. And I think it's almost like that is the nature of these kinds of things. There is sort of the surface of it. And then as you begin to look deeper and deeper and and that is by design, these layers and um, maybe some of the layers we don't even know yet. But I I wanted to to get into I grew up in Chicago. So the, the name John Wayne Gacy gives me chills and it is just so eerie that you uh, make the connection between the new Joker movie and John Wayne Gacy, who, for people who don't know, was a serial killer who was known as a clown. He actually, you know, t- today clowns are scary. But back in the day, um, you know, we had Bozo the Clown. Uh, people had clowns would come to their birthday parties when I was growing up in Chicago. It wasn't a, a thing like today. You dress up as a clown and some communities, they want to have you arrested just for being in a, in a clown makeup. Up. Uh, but but this guy was a clown. He would hire out to birthday parties and all this became a serial killer, killed countless young men, many of them buried in his basement. Um, and you uh, make a connection between some of the symbolism in the new Joker movie and John Wayne Gacy. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it just goes to show you, I mean, that that's the one thing with the Joker movie, just how dark they decided to go with it. The actual Joaquin Phoenix Joker makeup is based on Gacy's Pogo the Clown makeup. 
with the blue triangles around the eyes. Pogo the, the clown. You're, yeah, the, you're right. Pogo oh. the clown. The same same idea. And and the um, it's it's subconscious that makeup that makeup that Daisy wore and that Joaquin Phoenix wears in Joker. Joker is shunned by professional clowns. The dark eye sockets and the red grin, the dark grin, because it resembles a human skull. Um, so that makeup is actually shunned by professional clowns, but you'll see it in Joker. Um, he has the blue triangles around the eyes, and he has the red grin. It's echoing uh, the, the Gacy Pogo the Clown makeup, and this is actually confirmed in the movie um, because the comedy club uh, that the character uh, Arthur Fleck, this is again the Joaquin Phoenix character, performs in is called Pogo's. Um, which is a direct reference to Daisy. Wow, I, mean, I never picked. Is, yeah, yeah, I never picked up on that. That is that is really something. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a direct reference to John Wayne Gacy. So the the movie is is very dark in that it's drawing this parallel with the Joker and John Wayne Gacy. Um, I mean, not too often do you find movies that are sort of basing their characters on real life or paying an homage to a real life, you know, very vicious serial killer. Um, but the Joker movie definitely has it. Um, you know, I mean, it's very dark. That movie is very, very dark. Uh, so, you know, the movie, the movie makers just went all in on this. I mean, I do think it works, um, uh, for what they're conveying, but I mean, certainly, I mean, I'll be the first to admit to say that is a very dark thematic, uh, to go with, to, to basically be paying an homage to this very, uh, you know, violent vision. Yeah. Uh, when I, I'll tell you, I, I did a review online about the Joker movie. And I went and I was sure I was not going to like it because I knew Batman wasn't in it. And I was thinking, how do you have Joker without Batman? And how is that going to work? You can't, you know, you got to have the good guy and the battle going on and all of that. But I have to tell you, I was riveted. I, 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 I don't think I moved from my seat to go to the bathroom to get popcorn. I mean, I got my popcorn and all that. But I mean, I usually get up three or four times in a movie and stretch and, and, and go outside a little bit. Didn't do that once in that movie. And, and a lot of people are uh, favoring Joaquin Phoenix for uh, an award and, and also that movie to get several awards. Isn't that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the movie just, um, just was nominated. I think for like 11 Academy award. I can't imagine why I know Joaquin Phoenix. I know it was, I mean, best picture. I think Todd Phillips got best director. I know Joaquin Phoenix got nominated for best actor. I imagine he'll win it. Uh, but yeah, no, that movie I've watched it also like four or five times now, and I'm like you. I mean, I found very, you know, I was, I, I, it's one of those movies you put it on, you can't really turn away from it. Um, I mean, there's just so much going on in that uh, film. Um, I mean, I'll just give you a couple more examples of this. I mean, the, the one thing that's very clever, um, and this is something I, t I talk about and I'm noticing more and more, is, 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 is this, this notion of occult casting. That's what I call it. Say that again, occult. Say that again, occult what? casting. A call casting. And this is when you employ an actor um, to resurrect in your subconscious mind an earlier performance to sort of transfer their cultural baggage into the, your into that movie, into the more recent film. I mean, for example, in Joker, uh, the appearance of Robert De Niro um, is clearly designed to evoke uh, these two earlier Martin Scorsese movies that he was in. The first one was The King of Comedy, uh, where he played Rupert Pumpkin. And, and the movie, The Joker, is essentially a remake of The King of Comedy, 
where De Niro played this loner who lived in the basement with his mother, uh, fancied himself a, a comedian, and was trying to get on a late night talk show hosted by Jerry Lewis. I think this is the same thing as Joker. Wow, I Maybe didn't I didn't know Martin about that movie. Thing. Yeah, that I didn't know about that movie. That's uh that's very interesting that uh that De Niro was in a movie with that plot line. Right. And then and then he was also in uh Taxi Driver, which is another Scorsese film where he played uh, Travis Bickle, which is the same sort of type of movie where you could get infatuated with a woman that she really liked him, but she not like him. Um and he you know, he he goes on this killing spree but ultimately becomes the celebrity um, and again this is echoing the Joker movie the same the same theme in it so by casting De Niro in that uh, uh, Todd Phillips is resurrecting his earlier performances um, to embed these into your subconscious mind it's very clever they, they, Hollywood is doing this more and more um, I first started noticing it with the uh, Matrix movie uh, but but I, when I first started noticing I thought it was very rare I'm noticing it more and more. It's more common than I originally um, and, and hit the, or you know had thought of. But another thing that they do is, I mean, you know, another great thing that's going on in Joker. I mean, again, it's very subtle and very hard. To hey, Rob, one. we're we're starting. Uh, Rob, yeah. we're starting to lose you a little bit. I, I, I it, maybe if you could just focus on uh, talking right into your phone. Yeah. Um, oh, sure. there we go. That's so much the, better. Um, that's great. Great. Is, is one of the things also like the, like I like that they did in Joker. And it's nothing sinister or anything, but if you um, watch it, um, pay attention to when the Joker or Joaquin Phoenix is in the the, um, the hahas, which is where he works as the professional clown. Um, you'll see numerous posters on the wall for something known as Amusement Mile, um, and this is part of Gotham City. And if you're familiar with the comic books, in fact, in the movie you actually see it briefly. Uh, when his boss is telling him to return the sign that got smashed over his head or he's going to dock his pay, um, he gets upset and he goes outside and starts kicking a trash bag. You'll see a Ferris wheel in the background. That's part of Amusement Mile. And when he's in Ha-Ha's, you'll see posters all over the place for Amusement Mile. If you're familiar with the comic book, the Batman comic book, Amusement Mile, a mile was often where the Joker had his hangout or his hideout or his HQ. Hmm. I mean, it was constantly kidnapping people taking him to Amusement Mile. So uh, that was very uh, clever and very well done um, in, in the uh, in the movie as paying homage to the Batman comic books. Yeah, it's interesting how they, I mean, there's enough details that you have to worry about doing a movie for them to be thinking about kind of, you know, three levels or four levels of a chess game, which is, you know, clearly what they're doing when they're getting into that sort of thing. Another one we've talked about before, which is a scary movie, is The Shining. And there's a lot to talk about in terms of symbolism there. Tell us about it. Yeah, The Shining with Stanley Kubrick is sort of a um, now like a seminal classic. And the one thing that's, that's really happening with this movie is um, this is a movie now that is referenced constantly in other movies. Um, anytime you have a movie that's, for starters, that's in a horror genre, but is dealing with um, isolation or, you know, um, seclusion, you will almost inevitably in there somewhere find a reference to The Shining uh, by Stanley Kubrick. And um, Kubrick, Kubrick is really one of those masters. Um, what I really like about Stanley Kubrick is he employs symbolism, but he knows when to use it and when not to use it. And, you know, he he, he knows, he, he, he uses it when it's necessary and when it's not necessary, and he, he goes for different things in different in different parts of his movies. And in The Shining, 
Um, the one thing that he really does is he uses repetition. Uh, he constantly bombards your mind, both con- your conscious mind and your subconscious mind, re- with repeating numbers, repeating icons. Um, characters are constantly saying things back to each other. Um, there are doubles all over the place in this. And the reason he does that is to um, convey this notion, this idea that the Overlook Hotel is this vicious reincarnation cycle, that endlessly repeating over and over again that the Delbert Brady, the Charles Brady, that the Jack Torrance is just bound to happen over and over again. No matter who comes in, no matter what's going to happen, there's going to be these two axe murders, you know, of the mother, you know, the, the kid or the daughter, and it, you know, it's, it's the same thing over and over and over again. So to convey this, Kubrick just constantly bombards you um, with doubles, with repetition. Uh, I mean, for example, um, the number 12 is, is repeated all over the place in this thing. Uh, the room number is 237. If you add up 237, you get the number 12. Uh, the hotel identification is uh, KDK-12. Um, he throws the ball, the tennis ball, against the wall 12 times. Uh, there are 12 turkeys in the, uh, in the storage area. There are 24 pork roasts. 12, 12 times 2 is 24. Um, he throws the ball against the wall 12 times. He hits the wall, uh, the wall with the, or the, excuse me, the door with the axe 12 times. Uh, Danny and Wendy take 12 turns in the hedge maze. Uh, there are two times shown on the screen, 84 at 8 plus 4 equals 12. Um, so it's just this constantly. So what is the number 12? What is, what do you think the number 12 means in all of oh, that? Oh, I think it's just the number he picked. No, it's probably just the number he picked. Um, there is some biblical allegory going on. Uh, 12 turns up in the Bible. Uh, the number 42 repeats. 42 is a biblical number as well. Um, you know, the whole idea of light versus dark is, preval- is prevalent in that movie. Um, so, you know, you're dealing with, um, you know, numbers that, you know, carry a very archetypal meaning in them, very power, power numbers, as it were. So these are numbers that uh, Kubrick chooses to repeat. Um, and, you know, he, he mentions this. If you, if you look at the script, the copy of the script, he talks about this, about he writes down, you know, number. He says, you know, use this over and over again. Um, so he definitely did it. And um, that's the one thing I, I like about um, analyzing this and, and this study is, it's, it's not like a bunch of like Bigfoot where, you know, is it really Bigfoot or is it a, you know, guy in a eight suit? Um, when you pick up on this, you can see it with your own eyes. I mean, you know, for example, um, when the show's over and you have the shining of Blu-ray or DVD, you're throwing your machine and you'll see all this that I just talked about. So, I mean, it's definitely there. And when you, yeah, you and I would imagine... I would imagine if someone has the book and they are looking for these things, you sort of have the tip off in advance uh, to, to look for these things. Talk about uh, Star Wars. Uh, I don't know if there was anything in this most recent Star Wars movie, which I did see. That was a surprise to me because I got all I read all this. It was going to be terrible. And it was great. I, I, you know, I'm not one that's really into the Star Wars. I've got my adult kids, um, my son-in-law. They like know all the characters and why this happened and that happened. And I, I, I followed. I've seen all of them, but I, I'm not someone that has a, a really deep understanding of it all. Um, but I still enjoyed the the movie. This this recent movie, I thought it was fine. But uh, everybody said Disney ruined the franchise and this was the end and they betrayed Lucas. And I, I kind of went in. 
expecting nothing. And I guess my expectations were so low. I was, I was very pleasantly surprised. Uh, any, anything in this most recent star Wars or, or if you want to go and tell us about some of the other, uh, prior star Wars movies that use these, uh, symbols. Sure. Um, I have not seen the last, uh, the latest star Wars movie. So not having seen it, I really can't, uh, comment on it. Um, but yeah, the Star Wars movies are, and you know, this even goes back to the days of Lucas. Um, these are use a lot of comparative religion, uh, themes. Again, you know, ideas of light versus dark, good versus evil. I mean, it, 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 a lot of it is the Joseph Campbell monomyth. Um, Campbell was a comparative mythology expert and he wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And in this book, he basically gives you this archetypal adventures hero that is dominant in all mythology. You know, the hero plucked from kind of the common folk, goes on this mythological grand journey, grand adventure, ultimately defeats some sort of dark overlord, um, you know, and restores order of some kind or, you know, or, you know, as a hero. Um, and you'll find these monomythic elements in the Star Wars films. I mean, even going back, uh, you know, to the original stories where, you know, the Luke Skywalker figure is the hero. You know, he's kind of this nobody. He gets plucked um, by the Obi-Wan Kenobi figure, the old hermit, who gives him the lightsaber, which would be the supernatural aid component. And he ultimately goes on this grand quest, you know, to topple the Galactic Empire and defeat, you know, uh, an evil overlord, Darth Vader, or the Emperor. Uh, so this is a, a really a, a study in comparative mythology. Uh, and, and again, Lucas has talked about this. Uh, you'll find these components in the latest Star Wars movies. You'll find them in the prequel uh, episodes of Star Wars. Uh, they are not just beholden to Star Wars. Many a uh, blockbuster features these comparative religious or comparative religion, comparative mythology elements, such as you know the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, uh, the Matrix movies. Uh, you know, uh, feature these comparative uh, mythology components. Um, Harry Potter as well. So you're dealing with, when you're dealing with these, you know, Star Wars, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings movies, it's really almost a study in comparative mythology, um, as it is in symbolism, because you're just watching the same story, uh, you know, repeat and recycle over and over. I mean, where Harry Potter is the Luke Skywalker figure, Voldemort is the Darth Vader figure, you know, this would be Sauron in, in Lord of the Rings. So it's, it's, it's really a lot of comparative mythology. And Hollywood, again, uses it to, you know, you know, are experts with this and they know what they're doing and they use it quite effectively. You know, the, the movie, The, the Matrix, which um, I, I think I've, I've seen the first one and then I've just seen bits and pieces of the other one. Of course, that that iconic scene, you take the blue pill or the red pill and, and all of that. There's been a lot of comparisons uh, of that, like to Alice in Wonderland. Um, there's a lot going on there, right, with the blue and the red pill. And, um, and and people are talking a lot about this idea of the Matrix. There's there's scientists today, not not, not quacks. I mean, real serious scientists that are saying that they believe we're living in some sort of a a matrix, some kind of a hologram universe that we're living in. This is not a crazy idea. It, it's some what some scientists think is really what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the Matrix movie is very symbolic. Um, this, this encodes a lot of ancient religion, a lot of ancient theologies. 
Um, you're spot on with the Alice in Wonderland uh, reference where Neo, um, after he takes the, the red pill, um, like Alice, quite literally goes through the looking glass um, where he melts with the mirror. Um, and then he awakens to the re- real world or the reality. Um, and again, this the whole idea of the Matrix, um, this is one of the, you know, if you ask me to list out the top three Gnostic movies of all time, The Matrix would probably be number one. Um, from a Gnostic standpoint, that has everything you're looking for. The false reality, the awakening to the real world, uh, the idea of Neo being the, the Christ figure, the Redeemer uh, figure of humankind, uh, you know, who's killed and resurrected. Uh, you know, you have him battling the Archons or the demons, which are the agents. Um, so you really do have a lot of um, Gnostic, you know, uh, motifs, uh, Christian Gnostic motifs in that movie. Um, there is an overlap between the two, and it's 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 a, it's a, it's really the the Matrix movie is one of the first movies. I think it came out uh, twenty year, over twenty years ago now. I think it came out in nineteen ninety nine, and that's one of those movies where, at least for me, for me as, as a writer and a researcher into this, that was one of those movies that was like when I first saw it and then watched it again was one of those movies where you say to yourself, you know, okay, there's a lot going on in here. There's a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of references here. This is one of those tip-off movies that, hey, Hollywood is using these ancient theologies, um, these ancient symbols, symbolism in general, you know, occult motifs, as it were, embedding them in these movies to convey other meanings, to convey a deeper meaning. And The Matrix is one of those really, uh, right off the bat movies, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, tip off movies that this is going on inside of cinema. So it's a very important movie when it comes to cinema symbolism, uh, the Matrix movie. And, uh, it's a movie that I analyzed, uh, quite exhaustively. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. A lot going on inside the Matrix. If you're just tuning in, our guest tonight is Rob Sullivan. He, uh, has two books out now on cinema symbolism. And then a third book is coming soon. Is that right, Rob? Yeah, the third the third book um, will be out in the summer of 2020. Um, it would have probably have come out more closer to the spring, um, but again, I, I decided to include another movie in it, which which won't delay it too long. But the movie, the the Cinema Symbolism Three, will definitely be out summer of 2020. All right, very good, and we'll continue on here. Just a couple more movies I want to ask you about. I didn't see it on my list, but I'm just going to take a chance and ask you um, about the Da Vinci Code. Because I thought to myself, if there's any movie that that has symbols <laughs> overflowing uh, and right there in your face, it's the Da Vinci Code. Do you analyze that at all in any of your books? Yes, I do. Um, I took on the Da Vinci Code in the first book I wrote uh, called The Royal Arch of Enoch, which is a, a, a book about Masonic uh, symbolism um, and that and Masonic philosophy and things like that. And um, that movie, the third, the Da Vinci Code movie, the third, you know, I think it was Angels and Demons was the sequel to it. The very first Da Vinci Code movie, the Da Vinci Code, um, does incorporate a lot of esoteric um, symbolism themes in it. Some of them are on the surface and are kind of noticeable, uh, but there is a, a an entire um, hidden reference references in that movie to the number thirteen, um, and this is actually referencing or citing this Masonic ritual called the Royal Arch of Enoch. And it's a long story. Uh, we want to have too much time to get into it. I'll try to encapsulate it as quickly as I can. But the ritual, 
documents, it's part of the high degrees of Freemasonry. It's the 13th ritual in the Scottish Rite. And the ritual documents the restoration of knowledge or wisdom. And if you watch the Da Vinci Code, any time the protagonist is in need of wisdom or knowledge, uh, literally the number 13 appears on screen. Uh, and there is this Masonic overlap uh, with the Da Vinci Code movie. So that they're referencing this, this high degree of Freemasonry known as the Royal Arch of Enoch to convey this notion that whenever the Tom Hanks character needs wisdom, um, the number 13 uh, appears on screen. And this, I mean, for example, like the Mona Lisa, which is one of the clues was, is kept in Hall 13, uh, when the keystone, which is critical within Royal Arch Freemasonry, uh, is in the back of the van. Um, the time on the guy's watch is 112, add 1 plus 12 to get 13. Hmm. So uh, this is uh, reoccurring in that movie. If you're interested in that, if you're interested in Masonic symbolism and Masonic motifs in cinema, um, that's something I take on in my first book called The Royal Arch of Enoch. Uh, the last chapter in that documents um, some Masonic symbolism. Uh, yeah, that, that is that's that's all very fascinating, and and that brings me to my last movie I wanted to ask you about, which sounds like it's a close cousin, is the National Treasure movies. Again, a lot of references there to Freemasonry. Oh, absolutely, um, and again, the the first National Treasure movie, I rank that up there with the Matrix. This was one of those movies that was kind of like a tip-off for me, like an awakening, um, that I was able to, you know, watch the movie and realize that there was a lot going on inside inside of that. You're absolutely right, Jim. I mean, just right off the bat, the movie um, has a lot of Masonic motifs, symbolism, just right off the bat, right on the surface. But what a lot of people weren't aware of, and again, this was a movie that I took on in, in my first book, is that movie, um, the National Treasure movie, the very first one with Nick Cage, is a and I should point out also that this is just this is somewhat breaking news is that Walt Disney is planning a third one. Really? Uh, okay. It looks like we're finally yeah we're it looks like we're finally going to get National Treasure three after about thirteen years fourteen years. Will it have it Nicholas? Like will it have National Nicholas Cage in it? Yeah, I, I believe they're all coming back. Dying wow! Cooper, so he'll he'll get he'll he'll make Cage. enough to pay the IRS or whatever his so bills what was, his bills are. Yeah. Yeah, one would one would think he doesn't have to sell any more of his comic book collection, <laughs> I guess. But 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 the um the the very first National Treasure movie is literally a Masonic ritual put on celluloid. Um, again, it's this Royal Arch of Enoch high degree ritual um, from the high degrees of Freemasonry, which is about the recovery or restoration of this um, secret Knight Templar Masonic treasure vault stored in a subterranean vault um, underneath the holy ground. Uh, that's the ritual. That's the Masonic ritual. And if you watch the movie, well, what's the movie? Well, that's the ritual. Um, it's the recovery of this Knight Templar, this lost Knight's Templar uh, treasure um, stored in a subterranean treasure vault uh, beneath the holy ground. And they, they have it in, in the Masonic ritual. It's uh, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. In uh, the movie, it's in New York City. It's a church in New York City, and, and it's set in New York City intentionally. That is a reference to a man named uh, DeWitt Clinton, who was a former mayor of New York City, a former governor of New York State, who was critical within the development and spreading of Royal Arch Freemasonry through the United States. So if you ever want to watch a Masonic ritual uh, put on the big screen, put on celluloid, uh, by all means, watch the very first National Treasure movie. It is literally a Masonic ritual on film. 
Very good. Uh, I'll tell you what, uh, you're a fascinating guy. Uh, all the things you do, including that you're a lawyer and uh, more books are coming. And uh, as we close it out, I want to tell people they can get your books on Amazon. If you go there and type in Cinema Symbolism, you'll get there. But you could just type in his name too, Robert W. Sullivan the fourth you can type that in and rob are there any websites or other information you'd like to give out as far as how people can follow you i know you're also active on twitter isn't that right yeah absolutely for starters thank you jim again for having me on your show it was my pleasure and i'll certainly come back on when my next book has come out um would love to do it all again so thank you very much for having you're me welcome on. our pleasure yeah, my website is yeah my, my website is my name if you're interested in what i was talking about um, and my books, my website is my name. My web, my name is Robert W. Sullivan the fourth. My website is www. Robert W. Sullivan and then the letter I, the letter V for the fourth dot com. Robert W. Sullivan IV dot com. Uh, there are links there to buy my books, the print editions and the ebooks. So you get them on Amazon, like you were just saying. Um, there are links to my social media. Follow me on Twitter. I have a Facebook fan page. You can become a fan of that. You can subscribe to my YouTube channel. There's information about upcoming shows. Uh, radio shows that I'm doing, such as your own, uh, information about me, uh, upcoming events. Uh, it's a very easy site to navigate, www.robertwsullivanivy.com. Links to buy the books, um, www.robertwsullivanivy.com. All right, fantastic, uh, and uh, so good to have him back with us again. And uh, super excited uh, for his new book to be coming out. And I will definitely uh, ask our producer, Joy, to uh, rebook you for the uh, the new book. So that, that'll be a, a great opportunity for us uh, as well to uh, bring him back on maybe uh, this summer for the new book, Rob Sullivan. His books you can get now, um, both of them on Amazon, Cinema Symbolism, the first, and then the second one. And then there's links to other books that he has available as well. I hope you found that uh, fascinating because I do. I, you know, I'm one of these people where... I don't know. I watch a movie. I don't get all this extra stuff <laughs> that Rob figures out. So I think it's fascinating to get sort of that second and third and fourth level of depth uh, to what's going on in these movies. And if you think some of these movie people aren't geniuses in and of themselves to make a movie um, and you realize all this other stuff is going on, all these secret hidden meanings and symbolism and all of that, man, oh man, there's a lot to learn about it. And, you know, as a Christian too, just to know, Hey, you know, what's really going on there, you know? And, and, uh, uh, as he said, there's a lot of parallels between, you know, uh, our religious faith and some of the messages in a lot of these movies in particular, uh, in the star Wars movies. All right. Stay in touch with me throughout the week. Of course, the website is christianmoney.com links there to all of my social media sites. I'm doing a lot more with Facebook and Facebook live videos, uh, so stay in touch and please help us out. Go over to iTunes, type in Jim Paris Live, bring up the show, leave us a nice review. We would greatly appreciate it. Remember, if it's Sunday night, it's Jim Paris Live. We'll talk to you next time. So long, everybody.